This morning we are continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be looking at the last few verses of chapter 3 and the first seven verses of chapter 4. If you'd like, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to that passage, beginning on page 973 in the Bibles provided. If you spend any time reading political news or punditry, you will hear the observation that our society is very polarized. The differences between us are multitude, and they seem to be more strongly ingrained than ever before. So that uh, surveys show that people are less willing to consider marrying someone if that person has a different political viewpoint than them. If you read the news again, you'll see so many different kinds of polarization. We have the, the urban versus the working class or rural working class. You have uh, suburbanites versus uh, more centrally, central urbanites, I guess. You have different ethnicities compared, white and black, Latino, Asian. All of these divisions are kind of constantly thrown at us, uh, kind of siloing us based on some identity marker or the other. And these kinds of divisions aren't Uh, unique to our society. We see divisions all over the world and in every kind of group. It seems like human nature is such that we divide off. We've, you often see in, in movies, you know, the, the, the high school is divided up into the, the band geeks and the chess club and the jocks, right? Every, every group has its subgroups. And as we know, churches are not immune from these groups. The divisions that exist kind of out there in the world can creep in to churches, and they can divide us as well. When we think about these divisions among us, they can be very real and sometimes very damaging. We think about the, the divisions between um, white and black during the, the uh, Civil War era in the U.S. Those are real and painful divisions. But even those divisions don't really hold a candle to the divisions between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world, in these New Testament churches that Paul was writing to and seeking to found. And one of the reasons that that our divisions don't compare is because in some way, the divisions of Jew and Gentile were ingrained in the story of Scripture itself. God had revealed himself to the Jewish people in a special way. There's a reason that that the term Gentile sinner was in common use because it was seen to be, if you're outside the covenant of Israel, you're far from God. So at least in some narrow sense, the division was biblical. But we see also that Christ has come to overcome that division. In the Galatian context, we have an, an extra layer that makes the division even worse. On this natural division and even this sort of covenantal division, we have the division that false doctrine brings. We have these Jewish teachers telling Gentile brothers and sisters, if you want to really be a Christian, you have to become in some way a Jew. You have to live like a Jew. And this is also a place where our churches are often divided. When false doctrine creeps in, if it's not... If it's not answered well, it can divide the church. And so we see in Galatia, these churches were ripe for divisions. This is a breeding ground for church splits. You have an existing division within the culture, and you have an extra layer of of division added on with this teaching of false doctrine. 
So Paul is clearly alarmed by this, so much so that he writes a whole letter, right, to these Galatian churches, trying to persuade them, don't fall for the divisive false gospel, hold on to the true gospel. His letter, this letter that we're working through, is meant to intervene. It's a, it's a medicine to preserve gospel unity among these churches, unity around the truth of the gospel. And so as we see what Paul says this morning, we're going to find Paul's solution to what divides us. And his solution is to proclaim that there is only one way God saves. His solution is to proclaim that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there is one salvation. And that one way of salvation is to be adopted by God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's going to be our first point this morning, that God makes sinners his sons by faith in the Son. God makes sinners his sons by faith in the Son. We're going to just gaze at that truth for a little while. That's how Paul establishes unity, by calling them to faith in the Son. And then from that point, we're going to build on that to examine how do we live as sons? How do we live out the gospel? And we'll see that the spirit of the Son forms us into sons. The spirit of the Son forms us into sons. That'll be our second point. So let's go ahead and read our passage. We're going to go back a little bit and read some of the verses we covered last week because I think it captures more the unity of what Paul is saying. So we'll start reading at verse 23 of Galatians chapter 3 and read down through verse 7 of chapter 4. Listen to God's word. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by by his father. In this same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. So in the section we're looking at in chapters 3 and 4, we see Paul's strategy for unity. He says that despite all the differences between Jews and Gentiles, they're saved by the same gospel, the same good news. There is one God, and he offers one way for sinners to be saved. They can be saved through faith in Christ. 
This is the foundation for the church's unity, that God makes sinners into sons by faith in the Son. We started off by talking about these things that divide us, and I mentioned how the division between Jews and Greeks is greater. As I said, it's a, it's a division in some ways ingrained in Scripture itself. The Jews were God's chosen people. They were elect, in a sense. And Gentiles were, with notable exceptions, outside of God's covenant. So they weren't part of the covenant there at Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the tablets of stone and had them build the tabernacle. To get a flavor of this division that was within Scripture itself, this is how Paul describes Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2. First, he calls them the uncircumcision. And then he says they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Well, that's the division there. This is who the Gentiles are, far away from God, alienated from the promises. They have no kind of natural claim on the promises of God because they're not in Abraham's line, nor are they part of that old covenant system. We might think that if, if Paul was going to offer a special kind of salvation to a group, the Jews would be the group, right? That they have this inside track. They are sons of Abraham. If there were to be a division among people of how they're saved, that this would be the division. It wouldn't be you know, black and white in America. It would be Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. But we don't find that division. But it is helpful to notice the depth of this division because it does lie behind the way that Paul speaks, I think in Galatians 3 and 4, about these different groups. So we started reading in chapter 3, verse 23, because Paul describes Jews there as being held captive under the law until Christ came. And then in verse 3 of chapter 4, he seems to be describing both Jews and Gentiles when he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. These elementary principles are evil enslaving powers. We might think of them as the enslaving power of sin and idolatry. But in both descriptions of Jews and Gentiles, we get uh, a same, the same kind of image, the image of an, an underage child temporarily held under a kind of captivity or guardianship until something happens. But the something that happens in both cases is that Christ comes. So the Jews are under the law until Christ came, until faith came. And we are all enslaved to these elementary powers until the fullness of time and God sent his son. That's the big point. Freedom only comes. It's only possible because Christ has come. The Jews don't escape God's condemnation through the law by some special set of extra laws. And the Gentiles don't have some other way of salvation. No, they have the same one. In both cases, the solution is Christ. So in Galatians 3 and 4, Paul is doing something similar to what he does in Galatians 1 through, I mean, in Romans 1 through 3. Paul makes sure to be an equal opportunity accuser. He says, all Jews and Gentiles have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody is in the same group. We're all enslaved to the power of sin. This is true for Jews, convicted specifically by their breaking of the Mosaic law. But in a Romans 1 sense, it's also true of Gentiles who have suppressed the truth about God and unrighteousness. It's a basic point, but again, given this division, it's one that Paul needs to make. Both Jews and Gentiles are under condemnation. 
We can translate this into, into our modern divisions by saying all people, rich and poor, black and white, Hispanic and Asian, the cool and the uncool, the band nerds and the chess nerds, all of us are guilty of sin before God. Instead of living for God, instead of loving people around us the way that he's called us to, we've lived for ourselves. And even if we have done a good enough job maybe looking our, making our actions look presentable, we know that none of us have perfectly worshipped God, none of us have perfectly loved our neighbor. And what's more, God knows every thought that we think is secret, every desire that no one knows but us. God knows them all about you. To use Galatians 4 language then, we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's just our natural state. We're captive to our own evil desires. And so on our own, we're hopelessly lost, deserving the wrath of God. There's no VIP section among this group of sinners who gets a shortcut to salvation. We're all equally guilty before God. That's where Paul starts, but thankfully, that's not the unifying message he has for us. It doesn't end there. His message is not a misery loves company message. But the fact that we are all equally condemned sets up the good news of what God has done through Christ. There is one salvation and one Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to die for sinners. So Paul ends his argument last week in Galatians 3.26 by saying, For in Christ you, were all son, you are all sons of God, Jews and Gentiles. To contextualize, we can use a, the grammatical uh, Texas-inclusive plural. All y'all are sons of God by faith in Christ. Because of Jesus... And only because of Jesus, sinners can go from being enemies of God to being sons of God. And that's the only way to be saved. That's where Paul grounds his unity in this one salvation that the one God has revealed. And he takes pains here to show how the salvation God has revealed is entirely from him and accomplished by him. To see this point, to drill down on the, the oneness of God and the oneness of his salvation, I want to look again more closely at verses 4 through 6 of chapter 4. Let me read them again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. Father. First, let's notice the source of this salvation. It comes because God sent the Son. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. He sent His Son to redeem sinners and to adopt them. So if we look at where salvation comes from, it comes from God. It's because of God's love. The love of God the Father for his rebellious creatures. If sinners have any hope of salvation, it's here. It's because of the love of the Father. And the Father shows his love by sending the Son, Jesus, and sending the Spirit. The love of God is nothing that we can deserve or earn. It originates in him. So he doesn't love us because 
we are good. He doesn't love us because he's looked through the future and saw, oh, they're going to make themselves better. They're going to improve. They're on the right trajectory. No, he loves because he is love. That's why the Father sends the Son. Think about how God dealt with his people, the Jews who he had chosen and set his love upon, and yet they had broken his law. They had rejected his prophets when he told them to repent. And yet God loves them by sending the Son to be born of a woman under the law. Think of Gentiles, these nations who who had hated God and oppressed his people when they could. God loved them. God would be right to judge us. He is the judge, but he doesn't leave us in our sin. He sends the Son to save us. So we think about the salvation that, that we have in the gospel. It's the salvation that comes from God. It's the, it's the salvation of the Father's love. And there's no other way to be saved than to receive the love of the Father through the Son. So that's where it starts. But then we see the Son. The Father sent the Son. And we see that the Son here is the Son who was born of a woman and born under the law. If you've been a Christian or just around Christians, this may seem so basic that we can skip by it. We all know the Christmas story. Of course, Jesus was born of Mary. Why is this worth noting? Well, if we skip past this, then we skip the amazing thing that God has done. God sent the Son to become like one of us. The Son of God has existed from all eternity with God. He is God. The Son of God has existed in perfect, loving communion with God the Father. And the Son of God took on flesh. He became like us. He became like us to do what we could not do for ourselves. So Paul says he was born of woman, born under the law. So as a man, he's able to obey the law in a way that none of us can. He perfectly obeyed it. He continues to live out his perfect fellowship with the Father that he had in eternity past, now as a man in perfect obedience to his Father. So he obeys the law for us, but he also dies as a lawbreaker. He becomes like one of us. He's able to die for us. He became like one of us in order to take our place, to be our substitute. So how do we know the Father's love? Well, we can know because he sent the Son, but then we can look at the Son. We can look at Jesus and see what he did for us. He left his throne in heaven. He came to live in this fallen and cursed world. He came to endure suffering at the hands of evil men for our sake. He came to obey his Father to the point of death. He continued, as I said, to live in perfect fellowship with his father to the point of death. In this glorious mystery, the father sending the son and the son willingly coming, we see the love of God poured out for sinners. Again, and this is the only way sinners can be saved. There's no other way, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, to have salvation than to receive the son's love for you and his work on the cross. It's only by faith in the Son who gave himself for our sins that sinners can be delivered from the guilt and power of sin. There's no other salvation than this. 
that God the Father sent God the Son, born of a woman, born to live obediently and to die under the curse of the law and to rise again from the dead. So here we see in Christ how Jesus accomplishes our salvation by what he does, taking our place, paying sin's price and rising from the dead. But God's saving work doesn't end with the sending of Jesus. Because Paul says also that God sent the spirit of the Son into our hearts. Without this last step, it would be as if God made salvation possible for us, but didn't actually bring it home to us. It would be like there's this thing out there, salvation, and we've got to do something. We've got to change our hearts so that we can believe it. But that's not the way it works. God himself brings salvation home to us by sending the Spirit of the Son into our hearts. The theologian Fred Sanders puts it this way in his book called The Deep Things of God. He said, The Son takes the lead in the accomplishment of our salvation, and the Spirit takes the lead in its application. What it means for God to send the Holy Spirit into our hearts then is that the Spirit of God grants us faith to believe. It is by this faith that we receive the salvation that Christ has purchased. By faith in Christ, we are justified, adopted, and made alive with God. So it's right that when we preach the gospel to sinners, we say that they must respond to this message with repentance and faith. That's what the gospel commands of everyone. Repent and believe in Christ. There's no salvation without repentance and faith. Repentance means that we confess our sin, that we are guilty before God, and that we deserve judgment from God. We deserve hell. And faith means that we are fully convinced that Jesus took our place on the cross, that God forgives us and declares us righteous because of what Jesus has done. So the gospel calls us to believe that message, that we can be reconciled to our God through Jesus. It's the response that the gospel commands, and yet we know that no one can exercise that faith apart from God's supernatural work. God, who spoke light into being, must speak light into our souls, Paul says. No one comes to repentance and faith unless God sends the Spirit into their hearts. So the Holy Spirit brings the love of God and the work of Christ home to our hearts. Once again, we see the exclusivity of this salvation. There's only one Spirit of God. There's only one way for God to come and dwell with sinners. And so again, we see there's only one way to be saved. There aren't two classes of Christians. There's not a a Jewish Christianity and a Gentile one. There's only one people of God. There's only one God who sent the one Son to redeem his people. There is only one Spirit-indwelt people of God. God sends his Spirit into our hearts so we can call on him as our Father. If you're ever curious about what Christians mean when we speak about the Trinity, what Paul teaches us here in Galatians is what we mean. So again, here's how Fred Sanders puts it in that book, The Deep Things of God. When we talk about Jesus sent by the Father to work in the Spirit, we should know that we are talking about the Trinity. The presence of the Son and the Spirit themselves sent by the Father to save us is the Trinity. The eternal trinity is the gospel trinity. God reveals to us who he is in his saving work 
the love of God, the coming of the Son, and the indwelling of the Spirit. It's through the Spirit and the Son that God is with us and for us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they work in perfect unity to accomplish our redemption. And so we see in their one work of salvation that we are serving one God, not three gods. There is one God and one salvation. To cap this all off, we see that Paul describes our salvation then with this word, adoption. He says the reason that God sent the Son is so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we're not just redeemed from the curse of the law, we're adopted into God's family. The Father sent his Son to make sinners sons by faith in Christ. Because of the love of God, we're adopted into God's family. We should have received judgment from God, but we get to share in the love that God the Father has for God the Son. This is the great hope for all sinners. Man, Paul doesn't say Gentiles can become God's sons by doing some Jewish customs. He doesn't say that Jews get to be sons of God by virtue of their Abrahamic bloodline. The reality is that no one, Jew or Gentile, is by nature a son of God. When Jesus was dialoguing there with the Jews in John chapter 8, doesn't he make that point really explicitly? You think that you're sons of God. You think that Abraham's your father. But really, the devil's your father. You're lying to yourself. You're deceived. They were presuming upon their Abrahamic heritage. And Jesus told them, what determines whether you're a son or not is whether you believe in me. He says it's not just the Jews, though, who are slaves of sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. We are all enslaved to our evil desires. That's where we stand by nature. But by trusting in Jesus, the Son of God, and his work on the cross, we can be joined to him in such a way that we become sons of God. God's saving work is to welcome us into the fellowship that God the Father and God the Son have enjoyed for all eternity. And he does this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Once again, to quote Fred Sanders, Jesus opens up the path of sonship and the Spirit puts us into it. So by his life and work on the cross, Jesus makes it possible. He takes away our sin and declares us righteous, but it's the Spirit who gives us faith and puts us on the path to sonship. He brings the message home to us. Consider the greatness of being called a son. You know, it may be easier to consider the greatness of trying to imagine what would salvation be like without sonship? Some bare legal process, which we're declared not guilty and righteous, but we receive none of the love and intimacy of calling God our Father. That's not what we have. We have the privilege of being sons. We can hear God speak to us the words he speaks to Jesus. You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. We can't say that because of our own status, but because we believe and have been joined to the son. What an amazing thing it is to be God's beloved child. If you're a father here, think of your own compassion for your children. If that's how you feel towards your kids... And knowing that you're imperfect and sinful and weak, consider God's perfect, powerful, sinless love for his children. He is our compassionate father. 
In Christ, as our brother Jason prayed, God has met our every need. He is a good father. He is able to do this because he is almighty God and he desires to do this because he is a faithful father. The only way to be saved is by believing this one message, that God makes sinners his sons by faith in the Son. That is the one way to salvation. That's the message that brings unity. And so in light of that, we should consider, well, what does it mean to live as a son? How does the spirit of the son form us into sons? Because that's the beauty of this uh, image of adoption. It doesn't just have a, a legal sense to it. It's, it's an ongoing relationship, right? It teaches us how to be Christians, to be sons of God. The spirit of the son molds us evermore into the image of the son of God. And so let's look at a few implications that Paul teases out here in the passage. The first way we live as sons is to live in unity. So Paul says this in the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither, not, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This adoption that God has done brings a radical unity. It's a unity that's meant to, to tear down the old worldly divisions that marked out the society. So there's no longer Jew or Greek. Now this doesn't mean that Jews ceased to have a Jewish heritage or, or Greeks didn't still like to eat shellfish or whatever it was. Those cultural things may continue but they no longer are the fundamental defining thing about their relationship to God and each other. Now they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says that they are baptized into Christ. This, this could allude to their baptism by the Holy Spirit, or it could be their physical baptism. They've been publicly identified with Jesus, the Son of God. And so they are now sons, and this changes everything. So if we were to live as sons of God, we should pursue gospel unity. We should work against those natural divisions when they threaten the unity of the church. We should try to be a church where that is not just for one sort of demographic grouping of our society, but a church for everyone who could confess the same confession that we do. Well, that's the church we try to be. We, we spend a lot of time in our membership class going over that, that we want to be a church where the thing that unites us is not that we just happen to, to like living in Spring, Texas, or that we like a certain football team. Those things are super secondary or tertiary or whatever the term for fourth is. All those things are, are way down the list, right? The thing that unites us is that we are one in Christ. We are sons by faith in Jesus. There's a, a, a churchly dimension here, it seems. I think if we recognize baptism here, when, when someone is granted baptism, they are recognized as belonging to Jesus. And so again, that starts to erase all these other divisions. So one, one way to practically carry this out is, is simply to work to build relationships with other members of the church. Seek to do the work of spending time together, having each other into your home, asking questions that, that get to the heart of the gospel. How are you doing trusting Christ? How can I pray for you? What sins are you battling? 
How have you found joy in Christ lately? These are the things that should unite us. So we're not talking about unity the way that we often hear it talked about in the world, right? A, a unity that seems to say uh, we have to erase all disagreements or differences. We're talking about a unity that is founded upon truth. The truth that God is God, that he has sent the Son to die for our sins. So if we're going to live as sons, we should pursue unity. And we, we see this even in Jesus' own teaching. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? For they shall be called sons of God. Conversely, if we sow division in the church, whether by false teaching or by gossiping or lying, hurting others, who do we show ourselves to be sons of? Well, Jesus has told us that too in John chapter 8, right? You see how important unity is to God. Paul himself says this great string, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism in Ephesians 4. The church is to be united around the gospel. We are to be a, a, a congregation of sons of God, united by the fact that we are all adopted. So how do you live out your sonship? Pursue unity with brothers and sisters around the gospel. Secondly, we live out our sonship by living in freedom from sin's guilt and power. Paul says that as many of you as have baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And we see him use this language elsewhere to talk about the need to be sanctified, to put on the new man and put off the old man with its passions and desires. We see these themes in, in, the, in Galatians of how we were enslaved to the law, we were enslaved to the elementary principles, but we are now freed by the coming of Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that sin is gone forever. It still remains in our hearts. We still battle it. But we're meant to live in holiness now because we are sons of God. Because Christ has come and he has made the decisive break with sin by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. So when you think of yourself, we want to be clear here that we are all sinners. But there's something even more fundamental than saying we're sinners. We're saints, made in the image of God, and now renewed in God's image by faith in Christ. That word saints can be confusing. It sounds maybe a little old-fashioned or Roman Catholic, but we need to recover it for ourselves. We are saints in the sense that we have been justified by faith in Christ. We are sort of positionally holy ones. And so Paul writes all, all, all these letters often to the, to the saints in this church or that church. We are God's holy ones, and we are now meant to put on holiness. We are God's sons, and we are meant to put on sonship. So we're meant to live like Jesus lived, loving our neighbor and loving our God. Part of the way we put on sonship, then, is we walk arm in arm towards holiness together. So again, thinking about that unity around the gospel, it's, it's a unity of mission, it's a unity of we're walking to the celestial city together, to use the Pilgrim's Progress language, right? We've, we've left behind the city of destruction, and we're all marching to Zion, and we're all seeking every day to put off sin and to put on Christ. So we should just have it as our baseline assumption when we're talking to each other that the person I'm talking with is a sinner and I'm a sinner, but that I'm also a saint, and that God has given me a job today of putting off the old man and putting on the new. So it shouldn't be weird for, if we confess sin to each other. 
It shouldn't be weird if we say, I'm struggling to grow in this way or that way, but I, I'm confident that God wants me to. Uh, to join this church is just to say, I want to be sanctified, and I'm growing as a Christian. That's part of what we're saying by church membership. So we voted in Allie and Allen into our membership in our members meeting. We're saying to them, we want to help you grow in Christ, and we need your help as we seek to grow in Christ. And we're doing that together. To live out of our sonship is to turn away from sin, to say we are no longer enslaved to it, and to live now to Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. So we put on Christ. So you can ask yourself, how am I putting on Christ today? What is God calling me to put to death? Is there some way that I'm indulging the ways of sin and death? Am I like a dog returning to its vomit? Am I, am I returning to those old ways? How is God calling me to put them off? That's one way we live out our sonship. A third way we live out our sonship is through prayer. This may be the fundamental privilege of sons, right? Why is the Spirit poured out into our hearts? So that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. Sometimes we hear evangelicals say this word, Abba, means daddy. It doesn't mean that. It's just an Arabic word for father. I think we talked about this in, in our, with Tim and Alan, that maybe this is, this is Paul's way of saying Jews who maybe have more Aramaic-speaking heritage, can they come call on God as father? And Greeks, you can call on God as father too. We all call on the same father no matter what language we use. The privilege of sonship is to call out to our God as father. What does Jesus say when he teaches his disciples to pray? Begin like this, our father who is in heaven. We pray to God, our Father. We have the privilege of children of God. This is the great gift of the gospel, to call out to God. So if, if you think that you are bad at praying, and I, I bet most of us could raise our hand and say, I, I wish I was better at it, I want you to realize the, the gift you have and how good you are at praying every time you say, Father. Because what you are saying is, I am your child because you sent the Son to save me. And because you poured out the Spirit into my heart. That's why I can come before you right now and pray, Father, hear me and know that he does. You are good at praying when you pray by faith in Christ to the Father. And we can pray for all things to the Father, can't we? We can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. One of the images that helped me most as a young Christian was from John Piper's sermon on that verse in, in, in 1 Peter. And he said, you know, the image of casting there was like throwing a load on a pack mule. You're casting your burden on the pack mule, and that mule is going to carry it for you. Well, when we pray, we get to cast our cares, cast our burdens on the Lord, our Father, who is our almighty God. So he is able to carry our burdens because he's God. And he desires to do so because he's a good and compassionate father. So how do we live out our identity as sons? We pray. We call on God as father. How do you grow as a prayer? Pray more. <laughs> pray about everything. Bring your requests to God. 
One of the things that I think has been so good about us moving here to Vicki Michelle is the opportunity to gather monthly for our prayer meeting and to, to pray, to bring requests to God about our evangelism, about, about baby Luke, about anything that's on our hearts. We can bring it to God and trust that he hears us. If you want to be encouraged by the Psalms, just note how often David confesses, you hear my prayers. These these evildoers out there who hate me, they say that God doesn't care about me anymore, but God, I know you hear my prayers. And David, David was able to pray that in a sense because God had said to him specifically in a special way, you are my son through the Davidic covenant. But the privilege that was uniquely David's is now ours because we are united to David's greater son, Jesus. We are adopted by faith in him. And so we can call on God as our father. So when we neglect to pray, we're acting as if we're no longer God's children. So the way to repent of that is simply to pray. Confess your prayerlessness and know that God is like that father in the prodigal son story, right? He's watching out for you to return. He's not waiting to condemn you. He's waiting to welcome you. He is our good and loving father. So this message of salvation through adoption again, is the only way to be saved. If if you don't want God as your father, then Christianity is not for you. But but here is this good news for all people. No matter whether they're Jews or Gentiles, there is one way to be grafted in, and it's through faith in Jesus, the Son. This is the good news, that Jesus came. He took our place as a rebel. He was crucified for us. He was given for our sins, and by faith in him, we become children of God. The Spirit of God is poured out into our hearts, and so we cry out, Abba, Father. Let's pray. Our Father, it is good to call on you. We thank you that you sent Jesus to die for us. Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have poured out God's love into our hearts. You have granted us faith and repentance and new life. O three in one God, we rejoice to be yours in Jesus' name. We pray, Father, for your help to live as sons. Help us to to turn away from the sins that once enslaved us, to live in the freedom and joy that is ours in Christ. We pray, Father, for unity, that this gospel truth would permeate our life as a church, that we would live as brothers and sisters. We pray that we would begin to live now as we will live for all eternity in fellowship with you, our Father. And we pray for your help to be better at praying that we would bring all our requests to you and cast our cares upon you, knowing that you care for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.